Well, good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. Coming at you live today, and uh, I'm honored and blessed that you would take the time to join us. I trust that you enjoyed our uh, worship experience this morning. And so I just want to ask a simple question before we get started. How are you holding out? How are things going for you? Uh, I trust that uh, uh, if it's a bit of a difficult time that you wouldn't hesitate to reach out to us. We want to be able to talk and support you in any way, shape that we can. So um, yeah, just feel free to contact us. Also, I want to do uh, a major thank you to all of you uh, from Soul Sanctuary and who contributed to our Easter offering. Last week, we raised over $9,800 to help purchase food uh, for the food bank at Living Word. And uh, if I could give you a Christian side hug right now, I'd do do that. You know, it doesn't really seem all that awkward now, does it? But uh, um, anyway, thank you for your generosity. And we are working now with Living Word as to the items to buy and and how to uh, space it out over the next little while so that there's always something in the food bank there for the people of our North End community. Now, um, we're starting off a new series right after Easter, and our focus will be 1 Corinthians. And we're going to examine this letter as, it, as if it was a message from a friend. Uh, before, though, we dive into the book itself, I believe it's really important for all of us to begin to ask, Who's the person behind the letter? Uh, History tells us that the the author of 1 Corinthians is Apostle Paul, and I need to say that probably no other Christian has been hated so intensely as the Apostle Paul. There are those who may not despise him in that way, but actually regret his influence on Christianity. Some people are actually troubled that Paul dominates the New Testament. About one quarter of the New Testament is associated with a man who was not a disciple of Jesus. And you take a look at uh, Peter, who's a a leading figure in the circle around Jesus. He's only represented with uh, a few pages of the New Testament. But also, when we take a look at the the New Testament, not only is Paul uh, dominant that, he's also a dominant theme in the book of Acts. So others are interesting. They, they want to blame Paul for giving Christians uh, a distorted view of Judaism. Uh, others, women specifically, blame Paul for their second-class status in the church and their inferior role in a culture that is shaped by it. So really, we have to ask a lot of questions like, who is Paul? Paul was one of the most influential leaders of the early Christian church, and he plays a critical role in the spreading of the gospel to the Gentiles during the first century and uh, during his missionary journeys, which actually took him throughout the entire Roman Empire. Paul started more than a dozen churches. He uh, is traditionally considered the author of uh, 13 books of the New Testament, more than any other biblical writer. It's very easy for us to to take Paul and want to put him on a pedestal. It's easy for us to get the impression that Paul was this type of super Christian. And we need to sort of step back and get a real complete picture of Paul's life. Because before he was known as a tireless champion of Christianity, before meeting Jesus, Paul was actually a rather nasty, vicious, cruel, vindictive. He was a mean sort of fellow, and he was known for persecuting Christians. Paul was born Saul, of Tarsus. He's named after the first king of Israel. We're not sure exactly when he was born, somewhere between 5 BC, 5 AD. 
but we do know when he, he was born in the city of Tarsus. It's uh, located in the province of Cilicia. It's in, it's in the far eastern part of Turkey. So very far away from Israel. The fact that he was born in Tarsus guaranteed him Roman citizenship. It gave him the special privileges of being a citizen of Rome. His death, though, comes to us approximately 62 to 67 AD. You're not quite sure, but it's in that time frame. And we do know that he was executed in Rome. Saul's identity is rooted in his Jewishness. This is really important because it affects how he writes. Saul was a primary example of a very righteous Jew. He came from a God-fearing family. He was a Pharisee just like his father. He was educated by a respected rabbi named uh, Gamaliel. And his Jewish credentials included this heritage, his discipline, but also his zeal. We're first introduced to Saul in Acts chapter 7. Stephen just finished preaching a very in-your-face sermon. As a matter of fact, let me just read his closing words. Stephen goes off, he says, You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you've betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through the angels, but, not have, but, not, but have not obeyed it. But uh, let's keep reading. Acts chapter 7. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed him, dragged him out of the city. They began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coat at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And while he said this, he fell asleep. Now it's interesting, some texts have this next little sentence. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly man buried Stephen. They mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them into prison. So what we see is this guy's ruthless. Even by his own admission, if you read in Acts 29 and Galatians chapter 1, Acts 22, Paul admits he's ruthless. But soon we find ourselves following Saul in, in Acts chapter 9. Verse 1 and 2 we read, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest. He asked them for the letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Like, do you get the picture of what's going on here? This guy's a perfect candidate for some anger management classes. He is seething with anger. He is boiling with such a rage that he's ready to go about 325 kilometers to Damascus to hunt down and to capture Christians. And then it happens. 
And we read the story of Saul's conversion in Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 3. Take some time. Begin to read it. It's fascinating. Look at the small details. Here we have somebody who's hell-bent on wiping Christians off the face of the earth. He has a supernatural encounter with Jesus. With Jesus himself, with such force that it literally knocks Saul off his horse. Let me say this. Christianity is supremely a faith of conversion. Christianity is supremely a faith of conversion. Everything we say, everything we believe is built upon one fundamental, one revolutionary premise. That you don't have to be the way you are. You don't have to stay the same. Your life can be radically changed by God. And conversion is a miracle that happens when the life of God literally intersects with our human personality. Once God enters into the picture, your life, my life, can never be the same again. Until then, you may be religious. You may be a very good person. You may be able to obey all the rules, the the rules of the church, whatever, but you haven't been converted. Religion is one thing. Conversion is something entirely else. It's the conviction that these long-held prejudices actually can be overcome. Lifetime habits can actually be broken. A deeply ingrained patterns of sin can actually be erased over time. Conversion is the certainty that, that what you were does not determine what you are. And what you are does not determine who you will be. You can be changed. You can be different. Your life can move in an entirely new direction, a 180 degree turn. If you, but if you take that truth away from Christianity, it actually ceases to be a supernatural faith, a supernatural religion, so to speak. If the possibility of real change is gone, then all we have to offer is nothing but a set of rules. All of the conversion stories in the Bible, of all of them that are there, none is greater, none is more profound than the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Raised as a a Jew, he's trained as a rabbi. He became a violent persecutor of the early church. He hated Jesus, hates his followers so much that he's doing his best to eradicate this new religion as it's some sort of dreaded virus. He did his evil deeds in the name of the God of the Bible. And then one day he meets Jesus, and his life was permanently transformed. So bad was his reputation at the first, uh, nobody actually believed that this was a change that was for real. They, they couldn't believe it. Word spreads quickly that Saul the persecutor has come to Christ. But over time, it took to prove his faith to be genuine. So, is this when Paul became Saul? Or, <laughs> or is this when Saul became Paul? That's always confusion because there's always this, I hope you're back with us, sorry about that. Technology, it happens. It's all good. We're talking about Saul. We're talking about the Apostle Paul. We're talking about conversion. We're talking about faith. Religion is one thing. Conversion is something entirely else. Something else entirely. It's the conviction that Long-held prejudice can be overcome, that lifetime habits can be broken, that deeply ingrained patterns of sin can actually be erased over time. 
Conversion is so important. It's the certainty that what you were does not, de- to, does not determine who you are, and what you are does not determine who you will be. You can be changed. You can be different. You can move in an entirely new direction, 180 degrees. If you take that truth away from Christianity, it ceases to be a supernatural religion. And if the possibility of real change is actually gone, then we have nothing to offer other than a set of rules. Of all the conversion stories in the Bible, none is greater, none is more profound than the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Again, he's raised a Jew, trained as a rabbi. He became a violent persecutor of the early church. He hated Jesus and his followers so much that he does his best to try to eradicate this new religion as if it was some sort of dreaded virus. He did his evil deeds in the name of the God of the Bible. And then one day he meets Jesus and he's permanently transformed. So bad was his reputation that at first almost nobody believed that the change in his life was real. Word quickly spread that Saul the persecutor had come to Christ. And over time he proved to be genuine in his faith. So is this then when Paul, Saul became Paul? Because it's a common misconception that Paul used to be Saul. And you know... Again, we see that Jesus calls him out. Some people say, well, that's where Jesus renamed him Paul. You may have heard an expression, Saul the persecutor became Paul the persecuted. There's no verse that ever says that. Paul and Saul are actually two versions of the same name. Shortly after Saul converts to Christianity, Luke also tells us that he goes by the name Paul. Acts chapter 13, then Saul, who was also called Paul, so you see it there, filled with the Holy Spirit, looks straight. And so for the most part, at this point now, the Bible refers to Saul as Paul. Now it's true in the Old Testament, God occasionally changed people's names. We looked at Abram when he became Abraham in Genesis 17. Jacob becomes Israel in Genesis 32. It represented significant changes in their identity. But that's not what happened here with Saul. The reality is Saul was a Hebrew name and Paul was his Greek name. The Greek version of the same name. It's similar to how James is the Greek form of the the name Jacob. Um, as Paul begins to evangelize Greek communities, and since most of the New Testament was in, written in Greek, it only makes sense <coughs> that we see the Greek version of his name. So Saul uh, is known as a persecutor of Christians. And this makes believers uncomfortable around him, even when he actually steps out and gets baptized. It took the believers a while for them to believe that Paul actually really changed. He has this conversion experience. He doesn't immediately go to Jerusalem to be trained by the apostles. He doesn't start an evangelistic ministry right away. What does he do? He drops out of sight. Scriptures tell us that he he went to Arabia. That's actually known as the Nabataean Kingdom which was sort of southeast of the city of Damascus. He goes there evidently just to study and meditation and to grow and to understand his faith and process everything that he's been through. I wonder if 
Saul was around today if the church would have put him on the Christian radio and TV. You know, we would probably have him write a book right away and have him hit the Christian talk show circuit, right? But that wasn't God's plan. Saul spent the next few days with the very same Christians he had come to capture. We read that in his conversion experience. He immediately begins to share the story of the gospel of Jesus. And it caused confusions to both Christians and Jews alike. It's going to take time for Paul's reputation as a Christian preacher to outgrow his reputation as a persecutor of Christians. And then he quickly builds himself a reputation as a formidable teacher. Throughout the rest of Acts, he's a prominent figure who uh, plays a pivotal role in bringing the gospel to non-Jewish communities. This encounter on the road to Damascus completely redefined who Saul was. It changed the purpose of his journey from silencing Christians to speaking out in support of them. Instead of taking away from their number, he begins to add to it. And once Jesus redirected him, Saul continued on this trajectory for the rest of his life. Saul went to North Syria. He went back to Cilicia to preach the gospel. We start seeing this new attitude beginning to emerge. There was a new attitude towards other believers. He goes to Jerusalem. He meets with Peter. There's this new attitude towards the gospel. He now preaches what he once tried to uh, destroy. He once hated believers, and now he looks for their fellowship. He once hated the truth, now he lives by the truth. He once hated the gospel, but now he preaches the gospel. He was once a terrorist, but now he's an evangelist. He was once called Saul, but now we call him Paul. Same man, new man. Everything is different now. A total 180, a total conversion. Jesus has made all the difference in his life. And as Paul says that the churches in Judea, which he once terrorized in his pre-conversion days, recognizes the amazing changes in his life. And they glorified God because of him. His life now starts pointing people toward God. The book of Acts records three missionary journeys that Paul took throughout what is known as Asia Minor, Cyprus, Greek, Greece, Macedonia, and Syria, uh, and, and, and was, he was driven to evangelize areas that nobody had ever visited. In each of these, Paul and his companions, they would set out to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. That was his calling. They would establish church communities. He would help these fledgling believers develop their own leadership. He would correspond with these churches regularly. He would visit them as often as he could. He cared for them. He loved them dearly. In some cases, Paul spent well over a year in the cities where he was preaching, living with the believers, uh, working alongside them. They're modeling a lifestyle of imitating Jesus. And of course, uh, throughout the course of his life, They estimate that Paul probably traveled over 16,000 kilometers just to spread the gospel. Side note, some people argue that Paul made a fourth missionary journey as well. Since some of his letters actually refer to events and visits that we can't account for in the book of Acts. And this also largely depends on whether Paul was imprisoned in Rome once or twice. We're not quite sure because his letters are very ambiguous about that. Paul suggested that he would actually travel to Spain in Romans 15, but we, we have no record of this journey in his letters. 
However, what we do have of is a record of early church fathers that actually claim Paul did, in fact, travel to Spain. In his letter to the Corinthians, his own letter to the Corinthians, the first century church father, Clement of Rome, said that Paul had gone to the extremity of the West, which at the, at the time, presumably, he meant Spain. Fourth century church father, John Chrysostom, said that for after he had been in Rome, he returned to Spain, but whether he came thence and again to these parts, we do not know. Cyril of Jerusalem, another fourth century church father, wrote that Paul carried the earnestness of his preaching as far as Spain. Now I'll say this, scholars can't be sure that Paul did make a fourth journey, but you know, as the primary sources for, uh, don't really tell us that, but we do know for sure of the three journeys he did make. Anyway, he traveled. He traveled Europe. And from the moment he became a believer in Christ, his, his life was transformed fully, 180 degrees. And while Jesus didn't give Saul a new name, he did give him a purpose, a brand new purpose, one that actually redefined his life. And instead of persecuting Christians, Paul was called actually to be persecuted as one of them. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he promised his followers that they would receive the power of the Holy Spirit. We read that in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The book of Acts records the miracles that the apostles performed. But Paul is not an exception. He also healed people. He cast out spirits. He even brought people back from the dead. Some of the miracles associated with Paul uh, are, are this. He made a sorcerer go temporarily blind. He healed a man who had been lame since birth. He casted out a spirit that was annoying him in Acts 16. That's a great story. He healed people. He cast out spirits through items that he touched. He resurrected a young man named Eutychus. Now that's interesting to be fair. If Paul hadn't talked the poor kid to sleep, he wouldn't have fallen out that window to begin with. He had a responsibility, I think. But Paul was also bitten by a venomous snake. Nothing happened to him. He healed a man who had fever and dysentery. To those who saw and heard Paul, these miracles proved his authority from God. Just as the miracles Jesus demonstrated for, proved his authority from God as well as we read in Mark chapter 2. Despite never witnessing Jesus' ministry, Paul arguably contributed more to the growth of the Christian movement than any other apostle. He laid the foundation for missions work that has continued around the world today. And though his life, throughout his life, he modeled evangelism and discipleship and perseverance and suffering for the Christians who knew him and for every believer today. And so for the next little while, we're going to be looking at the letters to the church in Corinth. Paul is the voice behind that letter. And what we have noticed is that when you begin to read 1 Corinthians, and I hope that during this week that this is what you will do, it's almost like listening to one side of a phone call. Much of the letter is Paul answering questions from the Corinthians. But there's a problem because we can't hear the questions. And, and to make it a little further complex, Paul is dealing with cultural issues of the day that at first seem odd or even irrelevant to us. Many believe that this letter was a harsh rebuke from Paul. And while there are several accounts in the letter where Paul is rebuking or correcting certain behavior, overall, 
I like to look at this letter as it's a letter from a friend. Right? A fellow believer who loves the church with his entire heart, who's willing to uplift and encourage and sharpen the believers in Corinth. Let me ask you a question. You know, have you ever had a really good friend? You know, uh, the kind of friend who is willing to say things that really needed to be said in your life? Do you know of a friend of which I speak? A friend who will stick next to you when things are hard? A friend who is there for you when all others are against you? A friend who's willing to sacrifice to make your life better? Do you have a friend like that? What about the type of friend who's willing to speak up into your life when you're actually out of line? A friend who's willing to say the hard things even when you don't want to hear them. That's a true friend. A friend that is one who's going to keep us going in the right direction. One who's going to keep us from doing further damages to ourselves or others who in their own courage will speak through love into your life. A true friend tells you when you're wrong. And that's actually what's happening here in this first letter to the church in Corinth. We find Paul doing that. And if this letter seems harsh in some places, and it may seem as if Paul is throwing the believers under the bus, but the fact of the matter is Paul is a friend of these people and he loves them dearly. He's been with them from the beginning, since Acts 18. That's the account how the church was planted by Paul in his second missionary journey. Paul had established some really close relationship in the 18 months that he stayed with these people. Paul's letter is not out of anger, but out of love, out of a desire to see his friends be what God wanted them to be. And what I can surmise is that Paul had received two reports. (coughs) One's a letter from some believers about the things that were going on that were not godly and not Christ-like. The other was a letter about many questions about doctrine and how to live life as a believer. And so when we look at the letter of 1 Corinthians, it's Paul's response to these two letters that he had received. Paul heard that there was a division within the church, that there was infighting about who was in control. He heard that there were believers that were taking each other to court, and it wasn't even a court of of believers, it was a court of non-believers. They were allowing judgment of their settlements to take place there. It was reported that there was this gross sexual immorality, even to the point of an incestuous relationship going on within the church. So Paul attempts to answer questions regarding marriage, Christian liberty, and I don't mean politics, but rather like things, what can we eat and, and drink? He talks about propriety and worship. He talks about the Lord's Supper. He talks about sexual purity talks about spiritual gifts. And these are all difficult questions to answer, but Paul is being a great friend of faith. That's what he does. And so he answers them faithfully, and he answers them truthfully, and he's not pulling any punches. And some of his answers will sound harsh to us, but his focus was from his love for these believers, his desire to see them be all who God wants them to be. And so as we begin to study 1 Corinthians, I want us to focus on Paul as a friend responding to a very difficult situation. A situation that forces him to be honest and very direct. But he understands that Paul, that for Paul, that love trumped all and that love 
is his focus in talking to the church in Corinth. Let me just close up with this. There are a number of reasons why I personally like Paul. First and foremost, uh, the massive change in his life. You know, experience there on the, the road to Damascus. Turning him into, you know, from being a killer of Christians into a lover of Christ and his people. It, it's astounding. You know, his public life before and after his conversion to Christ. You know, this guy was probably known by hundreds, probably thousands. And his transformation from a murderer to a lover, if I can use that, is widely known and undeniable. And, and what I love about Paul is he's not claiming this sort of private conversion experience. He's stating a public fact. His own explanation was that he had seen the risen Jesus. He received forgiveness and he was given a mission. Everything that causes me to love Paul when I, when I study him and read him flows from this ch- change. Either it's all owing to a great delusion, either he's nuts and crazy, or it's something that's worthy of my deepest amazement and admiration. The kind of human soul that emerges from these letters is not the soul of a deluded fanatic. Paul, the second thing I like Paul too is the honesty about himself. He knew he wasn't perfect and he didn't hide it from other people. He made them an occasion to help others fight for holiness and joy. In Romans 7, we read, I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want. Sound familiar? But I do the very thing I hate. I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see my members, another law, waging war against the law of my mind. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul is utterly and joyfully devoted to Jesus, even though it cost him everything. He's in this conflict. He's being real about it. And I think this is astonishing that a man with Paul's authority, with his exalted role in the early church, commissioned by Jesus himself, should be as vulnerable and honest with his own imperfections. You know, this is not the way of a deluded, deceptive person. This has the marks of a deep, humble, inner security and strong mental health. Another thing that I appreciate about Paul is his intellect. You know, virtually all those who have tried to undertake and study Paul with patience and rigor, they trace his thinking to the letter of Rome, to the Romans, and, and bar none, people agree that Paul is a brilliant mind at work, an intellect. You know, many have called the book of Romans the greatest letter ever written. Even Paul, Paul's enemies see his intellectual gifts. Acts 26, 24, Paul is trying to say things in his defense, and the Roman governor Festus says this with a loud voice. He says, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Paul was a brilliant thinker. Paul believed that the serious application of intellectual power Power was part of what it meant to follow Christ. Again, formally educated at the feet of a very famous teacher. He doesn't see himself, see himself as that kind of intellectual who would use his, his brains to outwit others and to exalt himself. On the contrary, he called all Christians. Think about this. Paul, this extraordinary mind, calls all Christians to think for themselves. Brothers, don't be children in your thinking. Be infants. 
and evil, but in your thinking be mature. He writes in 2 Timothy, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. He comes down to our level in 1 Corinthians when he says, I speak to you as reasonable people. Judge for yourself what I say. His intellect is balanced with his love and emotion for people. To the Thessalonians, he writes, We are gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we're ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. You hear it in his voice. Listen to the following three verses that he writes. My brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus. I'm sending Onesimus back to you, sending my very heart. The point I'm trying to make here is that Paul's combination of intellect and rationality with emotion, emotional authenticity, are not marks of some crazy, deluded man. He bears the marks of a mature, mentally healthy, stable individual who genuinely cares for people. Paul has a high view of God's sovereignty and salvation, mingled with heartfelt tears for those who aren't saved. He writes in Romans, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He cared for people. He wanted everyone to experience the life that Jesus offered. And finally, the most important, you know, one of the things that I really admire about Paul is he utterly devoted the calling that, that Jesus had given him. He was devoted to it, and it cost him dearly. In his unwavering commitment to his God-given mission, he was committed. He was committed to get that message of hope out to all people, regardless of his own personal cost. He writes in Acts, I don't account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. We see his life exemplified in his commitment, <clears throat> exemplified when he writes in 2 Corinthians. He's having a conversation and he asks the question, are they servants of Christ? Am I out of my mind to talk like this? I am more. I've worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently. <clears throat> and he's talking about people who are opposing him. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled. I have gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. <clears throat> I've been cold and naked, and besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak? And I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin? And I do not inwardly burn. <clears throat> if you say that this sounds like Paul's bragging, yeah, you'd be right in a sense. These false apostles are trying to undermine all of his work, especially in Corinth. They boasted that they had these great credentials. 
And so Paul says, and he knows it's very risky, you know, that's why he asks the question, am I, you know, servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm, I, am I talking like a madman? In other words, when you look at it, only fools will brag like this. So yes, he goes on to say, I have made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you, but I'm not in the least inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing. See, it's risky for Paul, and I love him for taking the risk for being frank and even sarcastic, because I know from his 13 letters that this is not a spineless egoist who, who needs to be propping up through praise of other people. The difference between a sane man and a madman is that when the sane man talks like a madman, he knows it, and Paul knows it. He may sound crazy, but he's making a point. He's getting their attention. And Paul's life demonstrates to all of us that he was sold out to the goodness of God, that he wanted to share that with everybody, but also that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. Surely this is one reason Paul's story shows up three times in the New Testament. If God can save a person like Paul, he can save anybody. That ought to encourage all of us who are praying for our friends, we're praying for loved ones to come to Christ. Often our prayers will seem to bounce off the walls or the ceilings, and we pray for months, maybe we're praying for years, and there seems to be absolutely no apparent result, but let me encourage you, don't give up. What we see is not the whole story. No one would have ever predicted Paul's conversion. Ten minutes before it happened, it seemed impossible. Five minutes before it happened, it seemed impossible. No one had any reason to expect anything. Ten seconds before the light broke and the voice spoke, Paul's heart was as hard as ever. But then God shows up. Think about that. And so I want to encourage you as believers to keep on praying, keep on sharing your faith, keep on believing, because you never know what God will do. And as we study his life, Paul goes to hell and back, but he held firm in his faith, and that can actually be a great encourager to all of us, even at this time. You know, we live in a world where bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people, and sometimes our circumstances argue with us about just how good God is. Sometimes God's good plan for us means going through trials and losses and heartache and death as well as with Paul. That's hard for us to put together. But hear me loud and clear. Jesus was there for Paul and he is there for you as well. Paul was well versed in the Old Testament, schooled by one of the greatest teachers. He would have known Psalm 31. He would have known when it says, how abundant are the good things that you have stored up for those who fear you, that you bestow in the sight of all, on those who take refuge in you. In the shelter of your presence, you hide them from all human intrigues. You keep them safe in your dwelling from accusing tongues. Praise be to the Lord, for he has shown me the wonders of his love when I was in a city under siege. Does that sound familiar or what? In my alarm, I said, I'm cut off from your sight, yet you heard my cry for mercy. And when I called to you for help, love the Lord, all his faithful people. The Lord preserves those who are true to him, but the proud he pays back in full. So be strong, take heart, all you who hope in the Lord. God has his great goodness stored up for you. Rest on that thought for a moment. God is up to more 
than you absolutely know, especially during this difficult time that we find ourselves in. And I'm pretty sure that even Paul would attest to this. Sometimes we just need to be reassured that everything is going to be okay, even when things are tough, like even today. I've asked Steph and and Jess to sing the following song, reflecting on the goodness of God. But before they do, can I just pray for you? We thank you, God, for drawing us to this place and time for interrupting us with your gift of life in Jesus. And whether we've heard the news many times over or, or this day we're listening with brand new ears, surprise us with your justice and righteousness. God, that our lives might turn into the right direction. I pray that you would startle us with your goodness and mercy, that we would receive your empowering forgiveness God, that you would stagger us with your hope and peace, that our eyes will remain wide open as, uh, as we look into tomorrow, wondering what, we'll, you know, what we're going to be doing this week in our world. So be with us, I pray. Guide us, speak to us, and may we be able to encourage others just about the goodness of who you are. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Soul Sanctuary. Go now, strengthened by the testimony of Jesus. Keep alert and wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ and continue to do right and remember God in your ways. And may God enrich you in speech and knowledge of every kind. May Christ Jesus strengthen you to the very end. And may the Holy Spirit guide you in faithful living until he comes. We go in peace to love and to serve the Lord. Now live the church. Tune in on Wednesday as we discuss spiritual disciplines, and we'll see you next Sunday. Be blessed.